in week seven of this series, and today I want to talk about our leader, Jesus Christ. Um, and in thinking about this, last week I mentioned Muhammad Ali. Well, I came across a couple of quotes last week that I thought were better for this week. Here's the first quote from Muhammad Ali. It's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. Aren't you just drawn to that? I remember as a kid, it bothered me that he was, not that he was a great fighter. I don't have any issue with him being a great fighter, but, but saying something like that, even as a little kid, when he first won his titles and was coming into his glory, I, I, it just bothered me. Here's another quote. At home, I'm a nice guy, but I don't want the world to know. Humble people I've found don't go very far. Problem is, Jesus said... Humble people go the farthest. So who are you going to listen to? Muhammad Ali or Jesus? I, I, I'm going to choose Jesus, and I'm going to follow him. And see, here's the deal. Um, anytime someone's words come in conflict with Jesus, you have to choose who you're going to listen to, who you're going to allow to have influence in your life. You're following someone's words right now. I want to encourage you to follow Jesus' words. Um, and in fact, um, God has given us his written word, and the written word of God should be the foundation of our lives. That's your first thing there. The foundation of our lives. It must be the foundation for counseling. It must be the foundation for work, for families, for our finances. I won't send you to someone who is a counselor who does not know Jesus because I don't believe they have the full picture of the spirit and the emotion if you do not know Jesus Christ. Um, and, and see what I hear all the time. I've been doing this for 34 years now. I've either been a youth minister or a, or a pastor over the past 34 years. And I hear people all the time say to other Christians, well, if I were you, I would do this, or you should do this. And it contradicts scripture. And I just cringe. That means I cringe a lot because there's a lot of unwise, unbiblical suggestions flying around in, in every church I've been in. You do not want to be the person who counsels someone else to do something that contradicts Scripture. You don't want to be that person. You need to go back to the, to the Scripture. It needs to be the foundation that you build your life on. Jesus said that you're like a man who builds his house upon a rock. And it also needs to be the covering. The, the, God's Word needs to be like an umbrella that protects you. You need to be under the authority of God's Word. And so when I think about this whole foundation thing, whatever you build your life on, that's what your life is going to resemble. Years ago, we had one of these swimming pools. Um, this is not us. Um, this is just a generic in-text pool picture. But you remember those little inflatable ones? Any of y'all ever had those little inflatable ring around the top? Well, we bought one because, you know, we wanted our kids to have some place to have fun. Well, we found a relatively flat piece of land, relatively Stuck this sucker on there, inflated it, and started filling it up. After a couple of days, it started leaning. But we had a couple hundred gallons of water in there, so we thought, let's just play it out, see what happens. Anybody guess what happened? It wasn't long. Praise God the kids weren't in there, because y'all have seen those on, on you know, America's Funniest Home videos when they just wash it down the road when the wall comes down, but our kids weren't in there. But when it fell, it was pretty spectacular. Could anybody have predicted that it was going to fall? Sure, our foundation was jacked up. Uh, and so it wasn't solid, so it was going to fall. Well, here's what I want you to know. Anybody driving down the road could have seen our leaning Tower of Pisa pool and said, that's going to fall. People are looking at your life, and they can tell by your foundation, whether you're straight or whether you're leaning. It's so much easier to see in someone else than it is to see in ourselves. But I'm just afraid some of you are on the wrong path. Some of you are leaning, and you're going to get in trouble. And, and it's like, um, 
It's like a plumb line, line or a level. God's word is a plumb line. So that's this thing you hold down and you, you have to measure against the plumb line to see if something is plumb. Or you have a level that, that you put down to see if something is level. It doesn't work if you don't use it. God's word is supposed to be the plumb line, the level that you measure your life against. And when you measure your life against it, if, if it's plumb, if it's level, according to God's word, then your foundation is firm. You see, God's word addresses everything that's relevant to us today, but Christians don't believe him or they don't follow him. And so they do not experience God's power in their lives. See, God doesn't want you to believe in him. He wants you to follow. Now, some of you are going to say John 3, 16 says, all who believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Yes, but we've dumbed down to believe in to say, well, yeah, I believe there's a God. I don't follow him, but I believe there's a God. I believe there's God's word. I don't follow it, but I believe. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about, I believe something so much that I do what it says. You do not believe the Bible if you do not obey it, if you do not do what it says. You do not have a firm foundation. God wants us to follow his word. It's more than saying, I believe in. It's, it's following closely. Now, way back in the Garden of Eden, Eve had a problem not believing in God because she saw God every day. She had a problem believing in something God said that she had never seen before. God said, if you eat of this fruit of this tree, you're going you're gonna to die. And she'd never seen death before. So then Satan comes up, the adversary, and he says to her, you're not going to die. And instead of believing God's word, she believed Satan's word and she fell for it. Um, and, and so she went that way. Here's the deal. When it's difficult to believe, she'd never seen death. It was difficult to believe that. But when it's difficult to believe God, but we act in accordance with his word anyway, that's faith. Here's how Tony Evans, I love Tony Evans. Here's how he says it. Here's how he says it. Faith is believing something so is so, even when it is not so, that it might be so simply because God said so. If you've ever heard Tony Evans, that is such a Tony Evans statement right there. Believing something is so, even when it's not so, that it might be so simply because God said so. So for all these weeks, seven weeks, I've been imploring you to follow Jesus. And without saying it specifically, I'm going to say it right now. If I'm telling you, if God expects you to follow Jesus, he must be a leader worth following. The issue is, are you a follower worth leading? We know Jesus isn't the issue. We're the issue. John Maxwell is, a, is considered an expert in leadership in our day. And, and I just pulled out some of his quotes. I've heard him say these things. I've been to some of his conferences. First thing he says is, everything rises and falls on leadership. Meaning if there's a problem with an organization, look at the leader. If there's a problem with the ministry, look at the leader. Everything rises and falls on leadership. The problem is not Jesus. He's the best leader of ever, of all times. Talked about that in a second. Next thing he said, with speed of the leader, speed of the team. If you're on a bus and the leader is driving the bus and the leader is going 45 miles per hour, you're on the back of the bus, are you ever going to go faster than 45 miles per hour? No. You can push on that make-believe gas pedal all you want. You're not going any faster than the leader. This one, a leader is one who knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. That's good. Jesus said, I am the way. Jesus said the way to eternal life is through a person and his name is Jesus. So Jesus is a leader worth following. Am I a follower worth leading? Because think about this. Anything that has a leader ends up looking like the leader. If the leader has integrity, then the organization is going to have integrity. If the leader is lazy, the organization is going to be lazy. If the leader is, is um, traditional, the, the organization is going to be traditional. If that is true, if, if if an organization tends to look like its leader, then I've got a question for you. 
why don't more churches look like Jesus? Simple answer. It's not Jesus they're following. I want to give you one characteristic of Jesus today, and then we're going to talk about his take on leadership. Jesus is, is meek, and meekness means strength under control. Strength, say that, strength under control. Say it like there's more than one half of the room. Sweet. Thank you. Now, we were at the, at the Houston Rodeo this week. We like going to the Houston Rodeo, and, and it's just fun. It's anyway, we, we had a great time, and as I'm studying this, I thought about the Houston Rodeo, and I thought about meekness. Here's the picture I came up of meekness. These horses are stronger than their riders, correct? These horses could do damage to their riders, but these horses are so meek that the dudes are even wearing suit jackets and ties. You could ride these horses all day because their strength is under control. Let me show you a picture of one that's not meek. I don't know if you can see that cowboy. He's got his teeth gritted. He is leaning back. And, and man, I just feel sorry for him because their heads are flopping back on those. And here's the thing. This not meek horse, it's considered awesome if you make it eight seconds. You can ride the other horses all day. This one, if you do eight seconds, you're world class. And one of the guys actually fell off at 7.94 seconds. And, and the, yeah, exactly. That's what we all did. And the, and the commentator's like, oh, too bad. <laughs> Got to go eight, not 7.94. You know, I just loved the Houston Rotary. Here's another one. Here's a not meek. This not meek dude couldn't wait to get out of the chute. Right? Look, his back legs are still in there. You see him bucking all over the place. He's not meek. Jesus is the meek one. Jesus has all power. I want you to say all power. The one who has all power created the universe. The Bible says that in him, through him, for him, all things were created. He has all power. The one who has all power had his strength under control so much that he allowed his creation to nail him to a cross to pay your sin debt, my sin debt. The meek one, representing Jesus, the not meek one representing Satan. So I think these kind of wild demon-possessed horses represent Satan. The meek one, the one who had all power, allowed the arrogant one, Satan, to win for three days. He had strength under control. He knew he had to come and fulfill his mission. So I want you to have this idea of meekness, his strength under control, the, the horse that was under control, as opposed to the arrogant one, Satan, bucking, kicking, trying to... Nobody's going to control me. I want you to have that idea of meekness and arrogance as we go through Jesus' talk on leadership. And, and the reason we're going to do this is because Jesus was the greatest leader ever. All right, check this out. He built a brand in three years that has lasted over 2,000 years and has 100,000 branches worldwide, and he did it without ever traveling more than 25 miles from his hometown. There is no other leader like that. There will never be another leader like that. Jesus knew that his, his followers would find themselves in leadership positions in the future, so he pulls them aside and he says, when you lead, you need to lead like me, and this is very relevant to you. If you want to lead anything, Jesus is going to tell you how to do it. So we're going to go to Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32. Mark was not one of the original followers. He was a friend of Peter. Peter was an original follower. Peter told Mark stories. Mark wrote them down. Here's one of the stories he wrote down, starting in verse 32, Mark chapter 10. 
They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And I love this little bitty tidbit here that Mark gives us. Jesus is quite literally leading the disciples. And you need to understand this. And you'll understand more when I, when I explain the rest of the passage. But Jesus is going to lead his followers through suffering and triumph. If you ever hear someone say, you follow Jesus, you'll never suffer again. They are not following Jesus. And they could be leading you to hell. Jesus said, you will go, Jesus said, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have tribulation in this world, but take heart. I've overcome the world. So he is going to lead you through both suffering and triumph. They were on their way up to Jerusalem and Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished. The reason they were astonished is because Jesus always had trouble in Jerusalem. The last time they were there, people were talking about killing him. They think that maybe this time they really will kill him. And so they can't believe they're astonished that he's choosing to go to the place where the religious leaders want to shut him up by killing him. You would be astonished too. Look at the next part. While those who followed were afraid, what were the two reactions to Jesus choosing to go to Jerusalem? They were astonished and they were afraid. You would have been too. And then look again, that means he's already done this once again. Actually, he's done it twice before he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. And here's what he says. Verse 33, we're going up to Jerusalem. He said, and the son of man, I talked to you a couple weeks ago about the son of man, the glorified one, um, who is a part of human history, whose, whose kingdom will never end. Go read Daniel chapter seven. If you want to know the, the son of man, Jesus is calling himself the son of man, identifying himself with that chapter, uh, Daniel chapter seven. He says, I, the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. You know, those guys have intentionally been ticking off. I'm going to be delivered over to them. This is the third time Jesus has predicted what's about to happen, only this time he gives us more precise detail. And you need to understand, Jesus not only created the world, he also knew the Old Testament because he helped write the Old Testament. He knew the hearts of men, and he knew that his time on earth was coming quickly to an end. He knew that the meek one had to have a showdown with the arrogant one for the souls of human beings. This is a pivotal point in history. Jesus knew it was about to come. Knowing all of that allowed him to say with certainty what was about to happen. Now, let me just stop here and say, this is another reason why following Jesus makes sense. If everything he ever said came true, except his return, that's coming in the future. It means you can trust what he says. Now, in this instance, Jesus uses eight future tense verbs to say what's going to happen. First, he said, the son of man will be turned over to the religious leaders. Then look what it says. They will condemn him to death. So that's the next thing. They will hand him over to the Gentiles or the Romans who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. That's sad. But look at this. Three days later, he will rise. Eight future tense things. This is what is about to happen with certainty. He said, when we get to Jerusalem, we've had conflict before. That is nothing compared to what's about to happen. We're going to have so much conflict that I'm going to die, but I will rise again. I just don't want you to be surprised. Look at this next word. Then. As in right then. I was thinking about this. And years ago, I started mowing lawns because um, we were... We didn't have enough money to, to put groceries on the table. That's really why I started when we started this church. And so Caleb started mowing with me. He started working with me because I wanted him to have money to do some things with. And so one time we had been mowing this lawn and then we had to, to pull weeds from this, um, from a flower bed. And I just can't, I think, I think pulling weeds in a flower bed is from hell, but we were doing it. And uh, we were sitting there and, and as a parent, you probably do this too. You, you look for teachable moments. And so we're pulling weeds and we're hot and sweaty. And, and I said, Hey bud, um, I just want to tell you how much I love you and how much I love spending time with you. 
I said, I know it's been hard being my son and us starting the church and not having money to do what your friends do. And we can't, we just don't have those things. I said, but I want you to know, I would go back and do it all over again because this has allowed me to spend hours and hours with you. And I'd rather spend time with you than have money. And so I just want you to know how much I love you. Now I'm pulling weeds and I'm thinking, man, that was good. <laughs> Caleb goes, then, exactly, Caleb goes, how much are we getting paid for this gig? <laughs> Nothing now. <clears throat> and then, well, so I thought back to when he was younger. I always did this, man. If something got run over in the road, I'd take him out and I'd say, hey, see this? You know, this is why you don't go on the road. And one time I was, I was telling, yeah, right? It's a great teachable moment. Y'all think that's funny? This is what happens to people who run out in the road. I mean, I think that's a great point. I don't see what's so dang funny about that. Then, so I, we have these teachable moments. Doesn't matter what it is. We would, then, and so I said, uh, got any questions, son? Can I pee now? <laughs> what? I've been holding it, daddy. Do I have to go in the house or can I go right here? And I'm like, by all, by all means, relieve yourself right here in the front yard, son. So he did. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, what just happened? Thought, I thought I was making deposits. Jesus is about to have one of those moments. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Jesus says, well, what do you want me to do for you? They replied, let, us, let one of us sit at your right hand, the other at your left hand in your glory. After the mocking, spitting, flogging, killing of Jesus, hey, Jesus, good talk, good talk, good talk. Can we be the greatest? We, we can't be you. We can't be the king because that's you. But you got a right hand. You got a left hand. We can be those guys. Thing one and thing two. Can we be the greatest ones? We don't care what's about to happen to you, Jesus. We only care what's happened to us. I want to be the greatest. And there's two of us, so right hand, left hand. We don't care. Just would you do that for us? Jesus looks at him. He says, even if I said yes, you guys aren't up for what's about to happen. And then this little semi-private conversation all of a sudden becomes public. Look what happens. Then the 10, when the 10 heard about this, so there's two, there's 12 total disciples, the two brothers, James and John, they're having a quiet conversation. The 10, the rest of them, when they heard about this, they became what? Indignant. Remember last week I talked to you about um, Judas was indignant and then the disciples were indignant because some woman dared to put, put this expensive jar of oil on Jesus and the money could have been sold. Uh, it could have been sold and the money given to the poor and it sounded so spiritual, but then God tells us they didn't care about the poor. They only cared about themselves because Judas used to skim from the offering. If the offering's bigger, I get more money. How dare you, how dare you hurt my offering? And, and this is, this is kind of the, the same thing. They were indignant not because James and John were insensitive to Jesus. They were indignant because they didn't think about it first. We want to be first. We want to be on the right hand and on the left hand. We don't care about what's happening to you. And Jesus looks at him and he goes, time out. We, we've been over this before, but it's painfully obvious that we need to go over this again. He says, when you have authority, you need to do authority just like I would. So look what happens. Verse 42, Jesus called them together. And said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. I have that highlighted, just lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. So what I've named this is positional authority. People are there for you. 
You have a position, and this type of authority is everyone below me exists to make me happy and to make my job easier. Uh, In this church and in every church I've been in for 34 years, there's somebody who will want to lead something. I think I'm supposed to lead this. I want to do this. And they'll come up to me or somebody at some point, and they'll go, hey, would you tell everybody that I'm in charge of this? And usually they want you to do it from the pulpit because then it has authority behind it. If the preacher says it, then, then it's good. Well, I got two problems with that. Number one, if I have to tell somebody that you're leading something, you're not leading. Number two, if I have to tell somebody that you're in charge of something, they're not following. Because everything rises and falls on leadership. Speed of the leader, speed of the team. You lead, people will follow. And if you ever wonder if you're leading or not, look behind you. If nobody's following, you're taking a walk. You're not leading. I just, I'm, I know a lot of Christians who are walking. They're not leading because nobody's following. And, and I came up with this. Actually, uh, Andy Stanley, I, I saw this in one of his talks, and Brian Swallow made this for me. So here, here is how the world does leadership. The big you is whoever's in charge of whatever it's going on. And then look at all these. Everybody in this organization, for you, for you, for you, for you. And then if you're on this level, but you still got, look, for you, for you, for you. And if you're on this level, you still got for you, for you. This is how everyone in the world does leadership. And the disciples are like, yes, that's what I'm talking about. I've been lorded over. It's time for me to do some lording. Woohoo, Jesus, I can't wait to be a leader. Now, um, last week I told you that all of Jesus' followers started asking what's in it for me. Right? We've given up everything. What's in it for us? They did not understand and they did not follow fully until after Jesus was crucified and he was resurrected from the dead. And I'm just going to tell you something. You will not follow fully. You'll not be a fully devoted follower of Christ until you experience a death and resurrection as well. Yours. You must die to yourself. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You must experience your death, your resurrection, if you're going to lead like Jesus, if you're going to follow, be a follower worth leading. They were so excited to see this for you leadership the chart, flow chart of authority. This is what we've been dreaming of, they said to Jesus, and look what Jesus says. Not so with you. Wait, what? This, this is the way the world does it, Jesus. Do you not understand? Jesus fully understood. <laughs> he says to the disciples, you know this works? Yes, we, we want it. We want all of that. And Jesus says, nope, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you, great means who wants to be a leader, who wants to be a boss, whoever wants to have some type of authority. If you want to be great, you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Jesus, that's not how it works in the world. And Jesus says, that is how it works in my world. And if you're going to follow me, you got to do leadership the way I I do it. Okay, Jesus, well, how do we get anything done? Because we walk out here and we hold open the door and we say, after you, no, after you, no, after you. Would you go through the stupid door because I'm trying to be great in the kingdom of God? I'm not going to get anything done if I'm just after you. Jesus is not arguing against leadership because Jesus is the greatest leader who's ever walked the earth. He's not saying that you don't get things done or you're passive or whatever. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, use your authority for the benefit of those you lead. At home, at school, on a mission trip, at work, when you're coaching a team, use your authority for the benefits of those under your authority. 
Now, put that back up there if you would, Travis. How many of you have ever seen an organization that functioned like this? How many of you have ever worked for an organization that functioned like this? If you work for this type of organization, you had better watch your back because no one else will. In fact, your boss says, if you're not here for me, you got to go and I'll find somebody to replace you. That's, that's how it works in the real world. And the, the disciples said, yeah, we want to be part of that. Jesus said, nope, you don't get to do that. Jesus' style of leadership, I call relational, not positional, says you, the leader, are there for others. You, the leader, are there for others. There, where's there? Anywhere you find yourself. Because everywhere Jesus went, he was there for others. Now, I mentioned um, John Maxwell earlier. He's got, a, he's got this chart about the five levels of leadership. I'm just going to run through this real quick. Here at the bottom is position. People follow you because they have to because you have a title. That's the lowest level of leadership possible <laughs> is they only follow you because of your title. Next up is permission. This says relationships. People follow you because they want to because you've established some type of relationship with them. Number three, production, results. People follow you because of what you've done for the organization. Here, you connect with people, but you've also done some stuff that they admire, so they follow you. Uh, people development, reproduction. This is where you invest in people so that they can, they can learn everything that you've learned about the business. You, you reproduce people and people follow you because of what you've done for them personally. Not just your, your kind, not just you've done things for the company. You have done something for somebody and they're going to follow you. And then the top, the highest level of leadership, pinnacle respect. People follow you because of who you are, what you represent. You got to be someplace a long time before you get to the top. And people say, because of just the person you are and you've done this walk for years, I'm going to follow follow you. Now, I had to read a book several years ago by uh, Jim Collins. It's called Good to Great. And I had to read this when I was in a coaching network where they were coaching guys who were starting churches. And so for six months, I'd read books and I'd go to these meetings and Good to Great was one of the books we had to read. Well, in Good to Great, Jim Collins um, studied companies that had been mediocre for a while they became exceptional, great companies, and they stayed that way. I don't remember if it was 25, 30, may have been 40 years, but in order to be a part of his book, you had to become a great company and stay a great company for the long haul. Now, when Collins started his research, he assumed that all of these companies that went from good to great, that their leader um, had one, at least one characteristic in common with all the other great leaders, and he assumed it was charisma. He thought that, oh, well, it, the, the, the man or woman leading this company that became great must be just this charismatic leader, and people follow just because they're such a great person. When he did his research, he found something very interesting. It wasn't charisma. The one characteristic that all great leaders have, he said is humility. Muhammad Ali was wrong when it comes to Jesus, and this, this research bared it out as well. People are drawn to other humble people. So Jim Collins, I'm just going to mention this, he, he talks about the, the level five leader, and here's what he says. Look at this quote. Level five leaders embody a paradoxical mix of personal humility and professional will. They are ambitious to be sure, but ambitious first and foremost for the company, not themselves. Every pastor that I have ever been drawn to that, that I loved and would go through a wall for or would go through a flaming deacons meeting for loved the church and they loved me more than they loved themselves and so I would have stormed the gates of hell for them. But I've been under pastors who said, your job is to make me look good. And that just did not sit well with me. 
If you've been in the, the, the for you type of organization, you're trying to get out the back door as quickly as you can, and everybody else around you is trying to get out of that. But if you've been in an organization that leads like Jesus, everybody loves being there, and they don't want to leave ever because it's like Jesus. So if you want to be this relational type leader, if you want to lead like Jesus, there's some suggestions I have for you today. The first thing, step one, is I want you to ask a very simple question. This is what I want our church to be about. First question is, what can I do to help? I want the leaders asking this. How can I loan myself to you for your benefit, the benefit of your ministry and the people in your ministry? What can I do to help you? You don't go up the ladder, you go down the ladder. Because that is exactly what God did. He looked down and he said, how can I help? This sin-broken, sin-stained world, how can I help? I know I'll send my son to die in their place as a substitute for their sins. When you do this, you are being like your heavenly father. Number two, do for one what you wish you could do for all. Did Jesus heal every person who was sick? No. Did he raise every person back to life who had died? No, how did he choose? I believe he allowed God to point him to the ones that he was supposed to help, and I believe you can do the same. See, ten, uh, not 10 years, 2010, I felt called to go to Haiti. And I would love to, go, honestly, I would love to go, and if God allows me when I'm no longer a senior pastor, if God allows me, I want to go all over the world. I want to do a mission trip every three or four months. I want to come back and immediately be planning for the next mission trip. Um, I've been to Puerto Rico. I love the, the island of Puerto Rico. I would love to go there. Praying Pelican Missions has just started going to Puerto Rico this year because there's parts of the island that still have not recovered from the hurricane that came through, the Cat 5 hurricane that destroyed much of the infrastructure. I'd love to go there. I'd love to go to Honduras. I'd love to go to Belize. I'd love to go to Jamaica, Dominican Republic. But God has called me to go to Haiti, and I will not go to another country if it causes me to neglect my calling to Haiti. If God allows, I'm going to take multiple mission trips a year. That's what I want to do when I retire. You don't really retire from being a Christian. When I retire from being the senior pastor, I want to lead people all over the world and build stuff in the name of Christ. But until that time, I will do for Haiti what I wish I could do for every one of those other countries. You can help one person. You can help one child. You can help one church. You can help one classroom. You could do for one what you wish you could do for all. But here, listen to me. You cannot do for none what you wish you could do for all and be a follower of Jesus. You can't. Following Jesus means the people you lead know you're there for them, not the other way around. And this, is, this isn't a suggestion from Jesus. It's a command. Lead like I did. And see, when, when non-Christians work for a Christian, I believe they should walk away going, that's, that's the most honest, most integrity-filled person I've ever worked for. I want to keep working for them. It's, it's as if they are getting their directions from God. Because if you're following Jesus, you are. And God tells us how we do everything. Look at Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do, if you eat spaghetti, do it. If you mow a lawn, do it for the glory of God. If you play golf, dude, you better do it for the glory of God. And, and, and I hit a shank shot and I lose a golf ball and I go, God help me. Right? I mean, I'm just, whatever you do, the scripture says, do it all for the glory of God. 
whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, here's the real issue. If you're going to lead like Jesus, you got to do this third thing, and that's confront your ego. Proud people do not lead this way. And the Bible says that God opposes the proud, and you do not want to be on the opposite side of God. Let me just ask you a couple of questions as we wrap this up. Did Jesus die for your cause? Did Jesus die to bring glory to your name? To your name. To God's name he did, but to your name. So is it really worth giving your life to something that's smaller than what Jesus gave his life to? No. Here's, here's how I know. Five years after you die, whatever your little pet project is that isn't following Jesus, whatever that thing is that you're giving your life to, nobody is going to be carrying out your wishes five years from now. My mom and my dad and my sister died this September. will be five years ago. Everything that was in their name has now been transferred out of their name, sold, given away, divvied up five years later. If you make it that far, I love my mom and dad. The only ones still talking about my mom and dad are my family. We're not carrying out their wishes. They're in heaven. I get to see them again someday. And part of their legacy was pouring into their children that following Jesus matters. So the house they, they poured their lives into is gone. Somebody else owns it. All the vehicles are gone. All the tools have been divvied up, and, and I'm still using those. I'll say, man, I need this tool. And I'll, I'll say, come on, Daddy, come on, Daddy. And I'll go and I'll find it. I go, yes, Chuck Washburn's awesome. But nobody else is talking about Chuck Washburn five years later. Jesus says almost everybody in this world is looking out for their own interest, but not so with you. Don't you dare do leadership the way everybody else does it. And then to finish up this whole conversation, Jesus wraps it up in this little bow, and look what he says in verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, there's that Son of Man thing again, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Good news and bad news. Good news is you can do leadership like Jesus. The bad news is you now know, and so you can't ignore this teaching. If you follow Jesus but think you're not you, you're saying you are more important than Jesus. You're elevating your life above Jesus' life. And if I were to ask you, do you think you're better than Jesus? Every one of you would say, no. So then why do you think you need to be served and you not serve? Jesus is not asking us to do something he hadn't already done. He said the Son of Man came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. If you are not serving somewhere in this church and somewhere outside the walls of this church, it's not Jesus that you're following. Because he said the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You want to do leadership like Jesus, you better get to serving because you will answer to him one day. He says, use your authority for those who are under your authority. So Jesus looks at us today and he says, follow me. And so my question is, are you a follower worth leading? Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you don't sugarcoat anything. You don't sugarcoat the death of Jesus. You didn't sugarcoat sin in the Old Testament. You don't sugarcoat sin in the New Testament. You don't sugarcoat the way you want us to lead. You want us to be servants. So raise up a group at New Life that asks, how can I help you? I'm here for you. We won't worry about what parking place we have. We won't worry about what seat we sit in. We will be here totally to serve other people so that you get the glory. Make us into a church like that, we pray in the name of Jesus.
Amen.